Good morning, fellowship. Good to see you guys, and can I say good to be with you all, physically present. Notice that I am actually here, not broadcasting from a screen porch with a dog. <laughs> Some of you have no idea what I'm talking about. <clears throat> Last week, at this point in the service, everyone expected Lloyd to come up and start teaching, and instead we saw Lloyd on a screen because he had... Uh, tested positive for COVID a few days earlier, which, by the way, uh, many of you may be wondering, how is Lloyd? In, in fact, I got a text message from my mom last night saying, how is Lloyd? She lives in South Carolina, she and my dad, and they watch online. They're watching right now, and sorry I didn't reply to your te text message, mom. <laughs> <laughs> Lloyd is fine. <laughs> he is fine. He's actually teaching this morning at our Franklin campus live in person, so it is good to be here. Um, I'm Rob Sweet. For those of you I haven't met and I know we have a lot of new people. I would love to meet you sometime. So just come down, say hello after the service, and I'd love to be able to shake your hand and, and get to know you a little bit as, as much as we're able to here in our church. Well, we're in this magnificent book. We're just getting started in the Gospel of John. So if you haven't already, go ahead and open your Bibles to John chapter 1. I'm going to pick up in this prologue where Lloyd left off. Uh, let me just say a couple things, though, before I jump into our text for this morning. You know, Following Jesus is the center of everything we do at Fellowship. Our mission is to become a community of people who follow Jesus with our whole heart and help others do the same. And so for the next 12 months, we're going to be taking a long, deep look at the person of Jesus Christ. Because if you want to follow Jesus, you have to know what he did. You have to know what he said. You have to think about what does it mean for me? to obey what Jesus commanded, to imitate the way Jesus lived and called other people to live. And Jesus opened up a path. He made a possibility for human beings that was not possible before him. And so together we follow him. We walk down this path together. And, and we get to this incredible gospel, the gospel of John. It's many people's favorite book. If you ask people what's their favorite book of the Bible or, you know, the old question, if you were on a desert island, could only have one book, what would you choose? And a lot of people say the Gospel of John. And one of the reasons is because of how simple the words are, yet how deep the message is. When you learn Greek, if you go to seminary, I remember starting um, Greek 101, they start you in the Gospel of John. Now, why do you start in the Gospel of John? The words are really easy. The words are simple. The sentence structures are simple. John was a fisherman. He was uneducated. He didn't write like Paul did. I mean, Paul writes these massive, long thoughts, like whole paragraphs that are sentences. John says things simply. And yet, the message is so deep. It's so profound. So last week, we'll put this back on the screen. Lloyd started the book with the first five verses. They're certainly worth uh, reading again. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. 
The first 18 verses of John are considered a prologue. They set the stage for what's to come in the rest of the book. It's actually interesting. Uh, All the themes in the first 18 verses is jam-packed with themes. They come back throughout the book. So let me show you just a brief list of some of the themes that we get to in the prologue of John. The pre-existence of Christ, Jesus' union with God, the conflict between light and darkness, believing in Jesus, the rejection of Jesus, God's glory in Jesus, the role of John the Baptist, Jesus' revelation, of the Father. If you've ever been to a Broadway musical or maybe an opera of some kind, the the first thing you hear is usually an an orchestral medley of the songs that are going to come during the performance itself. It's often called an overture. And so what the composer will do is they'll they'll take the the thematic elements or the melody lines of different songs throughout the, the play or the opera and they'll weave them together in the opening number in this overture. That's exactly what John is doing in these first 18 verses. He's embedding in these verses the key themes that he's going to impact for the rest of the 20 chapters all throughout the Gospel of John. And so this morning we're going to have a chance to finish the prologue We're going to go 6 through 18, so it's a lot of verses this morning. I'm going to move fast where I can move fast. I'm going to slow down at the parts that we need to slow down on. And we're going to cover three themes. And theme one this morning is witness, first three verses of our text, verse 6 to 8. Then theme two, receiving Jesus. And theme three, incarnation. And that's a little bit of an outline of where we're going to go. So let's start with witness, and let's look at verses 6 to 8. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. All right, so it's obvious here what the key word here is. I'm going to circle it on the screen. John came as a witness. Now, if you're reading this for the first time, you might think, oh, John is the author. He's talking about himself. Different John. The author of John actually never refers to himself directly, not by name, in his gospel, which is actually rather interesting. He has a, 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 a very veiled way of referring to himself. It's the phrase, the disciple whom Jesus loved. Four or five times you'll see that phrase in the book of John, and it's himself. He's talking about himself. And we'll get into that when we get there. But this John right here at the beginning of the book is John the Baptist. What does it mean to be a witness? Well, it simply means to give evidence of something you've personally seen or personally experienced. If you think about it this way, John the Baptist, part of the reason he was such a big deal was he was the first witness of Jesus Christ during the ministry of Jesus. John was the one that baptized Jesus, and we'll get into John a lot more next week, but John was the one who pointed to Jesus and said, look, you think I'm a big deal? I'm not a big deal. That's the one you need. So when you think about John the Baptist, think about someone pointing to Jesus saying, he's the one you need. He's the one you need to seek after. He's the one you need to follow, not me. And this was the witness of John. It's interesting as I thought about this, John, the author of the gospel, is also bearing witness in his writing. So he's another witness. You and I, followers of Jesus, are called to be witnesses as well, give personal testimony of the experience that we have with Jesus Christ. And so there's this theme of witness that will build throughout the gospel that we'll get into. Let's go ahead and move on though to the next part for the sake of time. I want to get in because from here on out, it's like absolutely dense and beautiful and theologically rich. Verse nine, the true light which comes, which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. Now, 
It's not the first time John has mentioned light. It's shown up already in the first several verses. And it's a good time to remind you that what John is doing here is he's intentionally using words and language from the creation account in Genesis chapter 1. Lloyd mentioned last week the first words of John in the beginning. Immediately take your mind back to the first words of the whole Bible, Genesis chapter 1, in the beginning. And John is doing that very deliberately. But he doesn't stop with that parallel. The themes he's using in his prologue are creation themes. Life, light. I mean, what were the first words out of God's mouth when he created the world? It was, let there be light. And then John is saying the light was the life. And the light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. This is deliberate creation language. John is trying to tell us that at the arrival of Jesus, something happened that you could describe as a new creation. N.T. Wright summarized it this way. John's gospel is about the creator, God, acting in a new way within his much-loved creation. It's about the way in which the long story which began in Genesis reached the climax the creator had always intended. Jesus is the epitome, the climactic moment of God's creation. And there's something new that's possible in him. Verse 10 continues, he was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. That word yet is actually really important and interesting because right here in verse 10 of, of John chapter one, we get the plot twist. We get the tension that enters the story. So if you've been tracking along so far, the first nine verses, you know God himself did something spectacular to come and enter into the creation. Yet even though God himself came into the world, the world didn't recognize him. The one who made the universe, made through him, yet did not know him. Verse 11, he came to his own. That's probably a reference to the Jewish people who were long awaiting the promised Messiah and his own people did not receive him. Verse 12, but, another contrasting word that's certainly important, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. We'll pause there and get to 13 in a moment. John is introducing this theme of receiving Jesus and he's setting up a contrast that the whole book is going to revolve around. The first half of the book talks about the people who rejected Jesus, which was the whole Jewish establishment, the religious leaders, the teachers. It talks about how they rejected him, why they rejected him. And, and that's essentially chapters one through 12 of the gospel of John. Chapters 13 through 21 center on the people who received him. This little band of followers. It's like the whole Jewish religious system said, this guy's got to go. This small little flock, Jesus calls him his flock, received him. And so from John's perspective, there are only two type of people, two types of people. Those who have eyes to see who Jesus is, therefore believe him, and those who do not. Or to use John's exact words, those who did not receive him contrasted with those who did receive him. So here's another key theme, receiving Jesus. As you read the book, 
John will constantly be inviting you to consider which one are you? Have you received Jesus? Are you someone who, who your posture is open to belief? Or are you someone who has not received Jesus? Do you have eyes to see, John will ask us. Do you have eyes to see the light that has come into the world? Do you have eyes to see who Jesus really is? In January 2007, world-renowned musician, Joshua Bell, violinist, put on uh, casual, nondescript clothes and a ball cap one morning, and he walked into a subway station, a, a metro station in Washington, D.C. He pulled out his violin. He opened his violin case up for people to donate money. And for about an hour or so, he proceeded to play some of the most beautiful, complex, exquisitely written violin music ever composed. He was playing a $3 million violin, performing this incredible music. Uh, and by the way, just a few nights earlier, Joshua Bell had sold out Symphony Hall in downtown Boston. But on this particular morning in a metro station in D.C., he made $32.17. 1,000 people walked by him. Only seven stopped to listen. That's the picture John is describing here. He's saying amidst the hustle and the bustle of millions of people living hurried lives, God himself has slipped into our world. But the world did not know him. The question John is asking you, asking me, asking all of us is, are we still so caught up in the rush of our own little lives that we miss the one who is life himself? And right here in verses 12 through 13, we get one of the clearest descriptions of the gospel in the whole Bible. But to all who did receive him, for all who see who he is, and what does it mean to receive him? Who believed in his name. That's what it means to receive Jesus. Believe in his name. I'll talk, come back to name in just a minute. For all who received him, believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Oh my goodness. There's another contrast. Contrast from his own people, the Jewish people, who did not recognize him, to now everyone who recognizes him, believes in him, receives him, becomes children of God, Listen to this, who are, not, who are born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. This is so clear. This is the gospel. Think about it. We're born again. That's a phrase we like to use a lot. Um, John will talk about that more in John chapter 3 with Nicodemus. That's when that's going to really come out, so I'll save it for then. But we're not born of blood, which means I belong to a certain nation or people group, i.e. the Jews. That's not what makes me a child of God, nor by the will of the flesh. In other words, it's not my own efforts. It's not my own righteousness and my own energy that can earn me being called the son of God, nor of the will of man. Nobody else can tell me you're the child of God. Only the will of God, only the choice of God, only the rescue, the intervention of God in my life. And how and when does that happen? Well, when I receive him. What does it mean to receive him? Believe in his name. What does that mean? 
in an ancient culture, your name was your essence. It's all that you are. So it wrapped up in that little name. It had such deep meaning. What is the essence of Jesus Christ? This is what John is teaching us. God himself. God himself. That's the essence. He's one with the Father. That's his essence. God himself has come to earth. That's what you are to believe about the person Jesus if, in order to receive him. What does the name Jesus mean, by the way? It's actually in Hebrew, it would be pronounced more like Yeshua. Uh, it's the same name as Joshua. So if you hear Joshua, that's the exact same name as Jesus. It means salvation, or savior. God, the incarnated God in the flesh, the essence of Jesus Christ, savior, salvation, God came to save human beings. That's what it means to believe in his name. And when you believe that, you take that to heart, you receive Jesus, then you are given the right to become children of God. And it's nothing you can do on your own. It is the grace of God. Now, the implications of receiving Jesus are so profound that John will take the next 20 chapters to dig in deep, to describe men and women who rejected him and men and women who received him and the different paths that that led them to. It's amazing. It's remarkable to think about the difference that this one decision in your life makes. Will you see him for who he is or will you miss him? Verse 14 is the one I really want to slow down on and, and we'll just take this first phrase and then finish the verse in a moment. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. So the first theme we talked about, you remember, was witness. We talked about receiving Jesus. And now we're talking about the incarnation. Incarnation uh, comes from uh, Latin caro, which means flesh. And, and by the way, the, the word flesh here uh, is, is a Greek word, sarx, which, which is, is a body. It's a human body. Now, sarx is often used for any kind of flesh on an animal or a human can even be used for meat. You know, it's sarks. It all means the same thing. But it's the material parts of us. The word, Lloyd talked about this last week, the significance of this. This is Greek logos. Had huge significance. All that that means. I want to unpack that in just a bit. But what John is trying to say here is this incredible transcendent word that came from God, that was God himself, put on a human body, wrapped himself in flesh. You might have heard it said that way. And dwelt among us. We'll unpack the word dwelt in just a minute. Let me just spend a little bit more time on logos, on, on, on the word. This is the first time that John's used it since verse 1. So let me take you back there. We won't put it on the screen. But remember verse 1, in the beginning was the word. The word was with God. The word was God. Connect directly to verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Remember the context is creation. The context is Genesis 1. It's light and it's life and it's in the beginning. With that in mind, what do you think the word represents? 
The word was the vehicle God used to create the cosmos. The creation account in Genesis says, and God said, let there be light. And God said, let the water separate. And God said, and God said, and God said. What John is, is implanting in our brains right now is something literally incredible. The living word of God, which spoke galaxies into existence, put on flesh and became a human being. That somehow that word that, that was beside God, close to God, but at the same time God himself, became human, became one of us. A body is so limiting. Think about all the limitations a human body put on Jesus. Bodies get tired. Bodies get hungry. You know, bodies can only do very limited physical things. What does the fact that God embodied himself, put on flesh, what, what, what does that tell us? So many things. One is that the material part of us matters. Our bodies are not lesser important throwaway parts of us. We are embodied beings. Think about this. The human body was God's chosen vessel for his image. Genesis chapter one, God created men and women, created them in his image. And the human body was God's chosen vessel for his son in John chapter one. The body matters. You might not like yours, I might not like mine, but the body matters. There's something about us, how we're made up, not just what's inside of us, but our physical bodies that, that, that are imbued with something of God. Here's something else this matters. Just take that one step further. Physical presence together matters. Human beings being together in community, one-on-one, -on -one, in groups, even in a large group like this, really matters. Now, I just want to say this. I know in our day and time, there's a lot of ways you can connect and kind of, you know, relate to each other that, that are not physically present. We've got technology. We can, you know, all, I'm happy for all of that technology, but there's no substitute for being physically present. One of our core values at Fellowship is better together. And we mean that literally. We're better when we're physically present. It matters that you're here this morning. And for those of you online, I'm thrilled you're watching online. You can't be here physically. I'm glad we can allow you to partake in this, but it's not the same. It's not the same. And, and, and I hope that you can hear and receive that and know that at Fellowship, we believe in incarnational ministry. So we'll continue to use online and streaming as wonderful tools, but there's no substitute for being physically present. We learn that from God. This is what Jesus modeled for us. Part of the way you can follow Jesus is by being incarnated with other people, being physically present with other people. And I want to tell you about some opportunities at the end of the service today that we have to be in community together. Now, picking back up with verse 14, I want to continue what John is saying. The word became flesh and dwelt, key in on this verse, tabernacled. The tabernacle was the tent. I can't write and talk at the same time. There's no way. Tabernacle. 
Okay, maybe an easy word, but not tabernacled. Um, th- this, this was the, the tent. God set up a tent and lived among us. He made his dwelling with us. Now, the tabernacle was so significant in Hebrew history because it was the presence of God in dwelling the tabernacle that led them through the wilderness for 40 years. And what would happen is the, the cloud that represented the presence of God would come over the tabernacle and then Moses would go into the, the tent of meeting and meet with God. Now the cloud was actually shielding the people from the presence of God. And what John is saying is there's no longer any need for a cloud covering the tabernacle. In fact, the tabernacle, the tent of God, the body of Jesus Christ is visible for all to see. That is Amazing. And not only that, but the glory of God doesn't have to be hidden anymore. Glory as of the only Son from the Father. And what did they see when they saw Jesus Christ? Grace and truth. All this is is Old Testament tabernacle imagery. The Shekinah glory of God, the cloud, the fire, the tent of meeting. Now we get this, in 15, we get this interesting parenthetical, almost out of place, it seems, sentence. John bore witness about him and cried out, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. John was older than Jesus. John the Baptist was. He was born a little bit before Jesus. He was the cousin. Remember, they probably would have seen each other growing up and, and you know how that is with cousins. You know, this is always a little bit of a, I'm older than you. I'm more advanced. John became a prophet long before Jesus started teaching. John was more well-known than Jesus was at this point, the very beginning of Jesus' ministry. Yet John recognizes the pre-existent nature of his cousin, Jesus. <laughs> He was before me. Now, when John continues the words, verse 16, from his fullness, he's going back to the glory in verse 14, which is grace and truth. Listen to it. We have all received grace upon grace, for the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. What a remarkable sentence that last one is. You can just imagine John, and you can see him in the text, uh, wrestling, stretching the human language to describe the unity of Father and Son. They are distinct persons, yet they are one. And John is is speaking very literally of himself, John the author now who I'm referring to. He was one who saw Jesus. He was one that, that Jesus touched with his physical body. He was one that Jesus looked dead in the eyes. And John is saying, anyone who saw Jesus saw God. I saw God, John is saying, and I'm a witness of that. Every person who encountered Jesus Christ in the first century in Palestine, whether they believed in him or not, they all saw God. Some had eyes to see, some didn't. 
Jesus' own disciples took them a long time. There's a scene in John chapter four when the storm comes and Jesus calms the storm and they're terrified. They're like, who is this guy? Who is this man that even the wind and the waves obey him? They didn't understand who he was. Not then. Even at the last supper, they're sitting around the table and, and Philip, one of the disciples, he's just like, oh, Jesus, could, could you introduce us to the father? <laughs> could we see the father? You talk about him so much. Oh, we would love to see the father. Show us the father, Philip says. Jesus says, Philip, have I been with you so long and you still do not know me? Whoever has seen me has seen the father. Do you have eyes to see? Sometimes our conceptions of God, the, the way we think about God, we conceive of God, is so intangible. It's just sort of a blur. It's like, oh, God's this mysterious, vaporous, spiritual thing. And, and yes, the Father is spirit. <laughs> you know, you can't see the Father, but you can see the Son. And the Father and the Son are one. He walked around with a body. He touched people. He was physically present. Last week, Lloyd's main idea of his message was Jesus is God. And he did such a great job of landing the impact of that through the images he used. And those of you that were here, you remember this. He put images on the screen of space. And if you missed the message, go watch it. It was really, really good. I'm going to put one of the images on the screen uh, right now. Uh, here, here's what this is. This is, this is um, from the Webb telescope, which is the brand new telescope that's out there, the most powerful telescope that's ever been in space. And, and this is a portion of space that, that is the size of a grain of sand if you were to hold it at arm's length from the earth. So you just imagine the night sky, you're holding a grain of sand. That's the size that we're talking about. And the Webb telescope concentrated on that little part of the night sky long enough with a long enough exposure that it could pick up the light that was emanating. All those bright things are not stars y'all, they are galaxies. And in that one tiny little part, Lloyd told us, there are 10,000 galaxies. And the average galaxy has around 100 billion stars. Jesus made all of that from nothing. You know, that was, that was last, that's last week. And the main idea from today's text is the other side of that mind-bending thought. And it's this, God came to us. The God that made all of that, thank you, all those billions of stars and galaxies, the God that made all that came to us. Let me show you one other image. Anybody know what that is? Say it. If you know what it is, say it. Spiral galaxy, that's a better answer than I knew. That's excellent. This right here is us. That is earth. This photo was taken in February 1990 by the Voyager spacecraft four billion miles away from earth after it took photos of the, the final planet and it was about to shut off its cameras to go out into interstellar space. They turned the Voyager around one more time toward Earth and they took one final picture. That's us. 
meditating on this very photo, Carl Sagan famously wrote this. Consider that dot. On it, everyone you love, everyone you know, everyone you ever heard of, every human being who ever was lived out their lives. Every king and peasant, every young couple in love, every mother and father, hopeful child, inventor and explorer, every teacher of morals, every corrupt politician. Think of the rivers of blood spilled by all those generals and emperors so that in glory and triumph, they could become the momentary masters of a fraction of a dot. There is perhaps no better demonstration of the folly of human conceits than this distant image of our tiny world. Carl Sagan saw in the pale blue dot a testimony to our insignificance. God saw in the pale blue dot a people worth rescuing. Of all the worlds in the universe, why would he do something so spectacular on our little planet? After thousands and thousands of years of, of, of trying to communicate with human beings, you know, it, it would have been understandable if God had turned his gaze toward one of the other trillion planets in the universe. But in the person of Jesus Christ, God came to us. Why would he do that? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. He did that so that whoever receives him, whoever believes in his name, he would give the right to become children of God. Do you have eyes to see? I was thinking about how we're going to follow Jesus together over these next 12 months and, and what the connection is to this journey from the text we've already been in. And it occurred to me, you won't follow Jesus, A, if you don't understand he's God. Because why would he matter? He's just another human being. If he's not God, he's just another human being like you or me. Maybe he's a good teacher. Maybe he had some good things to say. But he's not worth centering my life around unless he's God. On the other hand, if you only conceive of Jesus as just, wow, he's God, I can't relate to him at all. He's God. He's the master of the universe. He's the creator of a trillion stars. What am I going to do with that? How do I follow him? You also have to realize God came to us. God became one of us. Jesus Christ is fully God, fully man. And he says, follow me. I want to give you a little time just to meditate a little more on the text that we've covered today. It's so rich and deep. And we'll put two questions on the screen for you to consider in, in this minute or two. What does this text say about the heart or nature of Jesus? And what does this mean for me? And we'll leave that on the screen. And while you're considering this, I'm going to go back and reread an excerpt from the passage so that the word of God can come over you as you're considering these things. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, 
yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. For from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. I want to invite you to take out the communion elements you picked up on the way in. And if you didn't pick them up, please don't be shy to stand up now and, and walk out and get them. You won't be distracting anyone. I'll take a moment just to frame this up before we take communion together. For all who have received Jesus, this table is for you. Remember, that just means for anybody who believes in his name, but believes who he is, that that he's God in the flesh. That's his essence. That's his nature. And that he's Savior. He's Yeshua. He's Jesus. Salvation. If you believe in his name this morning, this is for you. This is to remind you that the gospel is real. That Jesus is tangible. He has a body. And so one of the things I love and appreciate about communion is you actually get to feel it. You get to taste it. You get to touch it. And what is it representing? What is it a witness of? Well, it, like John, in a way, this is pointing to Jesus Christ. This points us to Jesus Christ. This is something we can feel and touch because he's not in our midst at this moment. We have to wait before we can embrace him. But we can taste this. We can touch this. We can remember. With this as a help. Go ahead and peel off the top portion and take the bread. When Jesus was with his disciples, he broke the bread and opened their eyes at that moment and said, this is my body given for you. Receive it. Let's eat and remember. And in the same way, he took the cup. He blessed it and said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, the, the new relationship, the new way of being that's now possible. How do we get in on this? By believing, simply by believing for all who believe in the name of Jesus Christ, let us drink. Father, thank you for the realness, the, the tangibleness of Jesus Christ. Thank you for the remarkable humility, the limitations that he put on himself, the pain he endured, the suffering he experienced, 
also he could be with us and save us. And so, Father, even now with the juice, the flavors, the sweet and the bitterness of the flavors lingering right now in our mouths, may we be reminded that it's real. And may we put our trust in Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.